Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I, think, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Today, for a little bit, I wonder if you would consider, consider with me the notion of being dependent, of being dependent. You know, there are many connotations to that word. If we're filling out our taxes, having dependence can be a good thing because <laughs> you get to have less taxes to pay. I found myself trying to find some place in between all that. I thought, well, I am the head of a household now, and Polly is like my child. Does this not work? <laughs> but I don't think a miniature dachshund will ever get that much money taken for up for him, although it may cost us twice as much. <laughs> so we do think, so there are different ways that we, we use the word. Being dependent. Someone, if you say, well, they're being dependent, that can have negative connotations, can it? If we're in counseling, or if we are a counselor, the term codependent suggests that we are likely to be reactive to the behavior and needs of others in ways that are mentally, emotionally unhealthy. I found this rather good analysis uh, of what a codependent person is. In, from Psychology Today, and it was written by, in two, six, 2016 by Linda Esposito, a licensed clinical social worker, and she makes these comments. Do you, your, does your sense of purpose involve making extreme sacrifices to satisfy your partner's needs? 
It could be a partner, friend, child, whatever. Is it difficult to say no when that other person makes demands on your time and energy? Does, do you cover that other person's problems? Maybe they have problems with drugs or school or alcohol or the law, and you cover for them so they don't get known, codependency. Do you constantly worry about other people's opinions of you? Do you feel trapped in your relationships? Do you keep quiet to avoid arguments? Well, codependency, as it became developed in the uh, psychological wor world, was really not a good thing. Sometimes I wish that they had used a different term, although I have no idea. Maybe it's because there isn't another good way to do it. I like the term interdependent, and I hope that we'll get to talk about that a little bit in this sermon a little bit later on. But I just wanted to define some ways of dependency. And I do that because when we come back to it a few moments, we, we will have different feelings about it, about the word. And how we feel about it may have something to do with how we relate to God. So just stay with me a bit. Joan Shatister, I can't say it, but Joan, many of you know her, her writings, in Aspects of the Heart wrote this. It's a delightful way to begin to look at the parable we have before us, the tax collector and the publican, or the tax collector who is the publican and the Pharisee. So she comments about life this way. Humanity is a mixture of blunders. That's what makes it so charming, so interesting to be around, because none of us is complete we all need one another. It's only when we convince ourselves that we are the fullness of all that is that we become spiritually poor. The nice thing about being human is that you get to, fall, you get to fail a lot. Value that. Value that part of being human means that you get to fail a lot. It's actually priceless to be able to fail and to get up and to keep on going. Some of the animals in the wild only get to fail once because when it happens, they get eaten. But you and I, basically, are people who we already know we're not perfect. And so the only way we're going to grow into who God wants us to, to be, is to be willing to fail, to make mistakes, to learn from them. She goes on to say that we need to be gentler, though, with other people's mistakes. We need to recognize that just as we are not called to be perfect, neither are others. We need to give other people, when they fail, the grace to be forgiven, to get up, to keep going, to try 
again. Otherwise, what we expect of ourselves, we will expect of everybody else. And that can be tragic for all of us. Never be afraid, she writes, that you don't know or can't find or couldn't do something. Our imperfections and inabilities are the only thing that, we, that gives us the right to support the rest of the human race. The gift of knowing what we lack is the gift we have to give to the abilities of others. An Irish proverb says this, it is in the shelter of each other that the people live. Think about this for a moment. What are we, what are we trying to get at here? If we are willing to admit what's lacking in us, hopefully this spreads through community so that other people will begin to be willing to admit what's lacking in them. Have you ever been somewhere where everybody is posturing to be the very best, to know more, or at least to know as much? It is really nerve-wracking to be in a situation like that because everybody's about it. I hesitate to talk about clergy, but we are such a good subject for this. <laughs> clergy know how to posture well. <laughs> and if the bishops there, or the bishops are there, boy, do they know how to posture well. It's just one of those things, you know. But John Chisiter is suggesting that this is not how God wants us to be that's in sharing what our weaknesses are, that we can be most helpful to others. Well, some of us were raised not to be dependent on others. We were raised that being dependent was not a good thing. We were taught to take care of ourselves, even to go so far as not to ask for help. And this was taught to us not out of pride, but out of the desire not to put anyone out or inconvenience someone. So if I need help and I ask for it, I might inconvenience you if you weren't already thinking that you were going to be asked to help and made a decision to help me. Does that make sense? Well, it made sense to my mother. I can tell you that. Because <laughs> my mother's theory was, I'll do it myself. I won't ask for help because I don't want to bother anybody else. Guess who she taught that to? <laughs> so dependence, being dependent on other people, is something I've struggled with all my life. Wanting to be fiercely independent. But this can get in between us and our relationship with God. It's up against this whole background now. I want to pull out the parable for this morning. And I've been studying on these parables for a couple of weeks, and I've gotten some new insights from some later writers, one of whom is A.J. Levine, who is out at Southwest, or was out at Southwestern Theology School. She is Jewish, and she teaches at the theology school there. And what she brings to the table 
it's sort of debunking, debunking some of the Christian stuff that's gotten laid on top of some of the Jewish ways of thinking, which makes life interesting, certainly if you happen to want to study the parables. Well, let's talk about it. Let me just say, first of all, on, went, on Friday, we had a lunch and learn here. And I'm talking about seeing the parable in a, in a diff, with a different lens. Well, Dr. Chapman, who was the doctor of anthropology, who spoke at the lunch and learn, talked to us about a lot of things. But one of the things he got into was about these yellow glasses that you put on at night so you can see better or drive better. And he was so terrible, it's completely convincing that before I went home Friday night, I was at the handy-dandy Walmart <laughs> in the rain and the fog getting my yellow glasses. <laughs> I wore them halfway home and then I had to take them off. I decided those lenses were going to have to be practiced with for a while. <laughs> Seeing things through a different lens. Two people in the temple, the Pharisee. Now when we hear what he says, we immediately assume that this is just a self-absorbed, somewhat egotistical man who's trying to convince God, apparently, that he's even better than he has to be. He says that he fasts several, twice a week. They were only required to fast on the Day of Atonement. It's assumed, though, that he fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays every week because those were the, weeks that, the days of the week that it was thought that Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments on a Tuesday and came down on Thursday. So you fasted on those two days. He also says that he ties his whole income. He wasn't asked to do that by the law. A portion of what he has or grows, he is to tithe. Not everything. So he's telling God, I'm going way past what's required of me. We can get the feeling that he's arrogant, self-centered. And then we come over to the tax collector. Now you don't have to say much about the tax collector back in those days because everybody was giving their money to the tax collector, and they already knew he was a scoundrel. So they, but they also knew about the Pharisee. They would have known that the Pharisee is taking the word, the law of God, so seriously that he actually separated himself from others in order to do the prayers four times a day, in order to do the things that he felt was part of him to do. He felt like he was dependent on the law to show his faithfulness to God. Levine suggests that the Pharisee was doing, the Pharisee was doing what he'd been taught to do. That he was doing what he believed God wanted him to do. And the fact that he begins his prayer the way he does, thank God I am who you made me, and not like other people, she contends means that he felt dependent that God had given him this job to fulfill. It would be a little bit like if somebody were a lawyer who worked hard to be a lawyer, 
And they stood up and said, thank you, God, for letting me be a lawyer and not a gardener or a doctor or a this or a that. She contends that he's not judging. He's noting the fact that God has created him to fulfill this role. And because of that, he is dependent on God, and he is thanking God for who he is. That's a different lens than what most of us have heard from Sunday school on. If you were like me, I was always taught that the Pharisee was just a braggadocio. I never got all the background before of where this prayer that he prays comes from or how it was almost expected that one would pray this way. Then we have the tax collector who just come. He doesn't come up and do He stands apart. He puts his head down. He beats his breast. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. We can see his dependence. It's clear. May I remark that he never promises in this prayer that he's going to quit taking money from other people, making a profit off of his fellow countrymen. He never says that. No intention of what he's going to do after he leaves. What he does say is, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Now for this final part. I want to suggest that what is meant by the word at the end of the parable, and I will not go into the lengthy, try to go into the lengthy thing of, of explaining the Aramaic and going into the Greek, because I will be lost before you are, and that would not be helpful to either of us. But many scholars, more scholars today, let me say that, are translating one word that instead of going one of them was forgiven and the other wasn't. Believe that what Jesus was saying was they both went out justified alongside each other. That both of them were justified. Because the Pharisee did what he knew to do. The tax collector was asking for forgiveness. He didn't say what he was going to do, but God wants to forgive. This whole sermon is getting to this point. God wants to forgive us. God wants for us to ask for God's help. God wants us to realize that if we are dependent on God, we are safe. We're safe. We're safe and we're saved. That is what we're getting at. If you're better than I am, if I'm worse than somebody else is, if somebody else is worse than me, somebody else is better than you who are better than me, we're all in this together. We're a group of people. We're not a bunch of individuals. And somehow or other, we miss this sometimes. We can't get away from each other. We just can't. 
We're in it together. What you guys do affects those guys. And what those guys do affects those guys and these guys. What is it they say? The butterfly that waves its wings somewhere else in the storm that comes over here. My question then becomes this to you. Are you willing to be dependent on God? Are you willing to ask God for help? Are you willing to be able to say in the good times and the bad times, Holy God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is in that sort of mindset, that attitude, that we begin to see our brothers and sisters as people like us, not as people other than. Let me end with this. I don't know how long it's taken for this to get universally popular, apparently, in teaching, but the group exercise. I didn't have a lot of group exercises when I was in school, but that was 58 decades ago, so, you know. But I know my grandson, who's in 10th grade, or 9th grade, actually, just had one, and I had an administrator who went to Kennesaw State, And almost daily when she was in the process of being in this group exercise, you had to give her 7 to 12 minutes to get rid of it when she came in or she was going to make more mistakes than she needed to. You will not believe what that this group is. I mean, on and on she would go. Somebody wasn't doing their bit. Somebody else was going off on a tangent. I mean, you know. Well, my grandson group turned out that nobody in the group was doing anything. And he didn't want to lose his grade, so I don't, the story is that he got down and dirty and got the report ready and did the project. But this same Levine says this. He said, you know, the deal, the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's like the group school project. You got the smart one, you got the artist, you got the one in the group who's going to bring the food, get the poster board, make the PowerPoint, provide for the computer projector. And then you got the one who has no ability or no interest in doing anything whatsoever in that group project. They'll show up. They'll talk about it. But don't count on them to get anything done. So the others come together and they get it all done. And they get an A. And she talks about it this way. Some of the people get mad because all of the people got the A. But all of the people got the A anyway. God wants us all to have an A. He loves the Pharisee and he loves the tax collector. He loves the good person and the rotten person. And if we can accept that all people are loved by God, we have gone a long, long way to understanding what it feels like to be a child of God. And may I say, we've come a long, long way of being able to stand and say, forgive me, God, 
for I am a sinner. Amen.